Hello, it's John Worsey here. I hope you're enjoying this series of Life Solved from the University of Portsmouth. We are taking a little break for Christmas, but we're going to be back in the new year with more world-changing stories and research. But in case that's a little too long to wait, I wanted to bring you a preview of what's coming up in the rest of Series 2. We've started out this series with a heavy focus on environment and sustainability. That's in line with our commitment as a university to become a climate-positive organisation. And recently, we've heard the government pledge its steps towards a green industrial revolution, something that will only be possible thanks to the research and innovation taking place across our universities and institutions. So it looks like life as we know it is facing a revolution and we'll all get to play a part in the coming years. But how does that start in day-to-day -day life? Here's a clip from our forthcoming episode on how plastic packaging could actually help to reduce food waste. Here's Professor Paul Trott. The evidence is yeah. pretty dramatic and it's pretty convincing that um, packaging is a powerful reducer of food waste. Yeah. So pe people need to be a bit careful when they're always arguing for less packaging. And I think I mean, if people were to do more research, they would uncover there are certain food categories mm. where more packaging can be justified. Yeah. And my guess, there are other area food categories where less packaging can can be justified yeah. you know where you buy chicken now all and you cook it in the bag yeah i mean that was largely introduced to reduce the the problem that the chicken producers had of, of reducing the bacteria on harmful bacteria on, 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 the, on the chicken sometimes the illustration can be a dramatic cut in yeah. in food waste or in that case a, uh, an example of a, an improvement in the health and hygiene health and hygiene yeah. exactly yeah and so we recognize that some products are far more dependent on their packaging than others rice microwavable rice is a good one but when it comes to food the packaging does perform quite a number of functions so for a water bottle not only does it contain it but it helps with dispensing and things like that mm. with the microwavable rice you're starting to build in more and more functions and then it then becomes to help with the cooking of it yeah so it can enhance the cooking and if you start to look at some food products you can see how some products are, are very dependent and there are categories that are, are dependent so fresh fresh products you don't need any packaging for fresh mm. products unless you want to increase the shelf life so there are some products that you could go to a store and just help yourself. To, yes, you know, yes scoop it out. Yeah, yeah. And, but there are categories where there are, there's scope, and what we're saying to companies is look carefully at some of the products because there are opportunities to build in functions and mm. activities which, in other words, you can charge more for. And with Christmas on the way, perhaps some of you will be remembering overdoing it at office parties and get-togethers in previous years. Well, in January, Dr Emily Nichols will be explaining what she found out when she studied women on the traditional girls' night out and what contemporary conversations around sobriety are doing to stigma in feminine identity. I think there was a certain degree of policing from female friends. So some of my participants would say, I'll come down in a pair of jeans and I'll get 
pointed right back up the stairs by my mates to get changed into, yeah. you know, or I'll get forced into a dress and a pair of heels, for example. So there was a certain amount of policing by mates. There was also a certain level of more subtle policing, often by other women, on a night out itself. So mm. looking someone up and down, whispering in the toilets, for right. example. So a lot of my Geordie participants who did like to get a bit more glammed up and dressed up for a night out would talk about other women kind of giving them a snide look in the toilets or, you know, whispering about them. And they, and they knew right. that women were commenting on their overdone, as they yeah. would have called it, appearance and, and dress. So a lot of it, I think, interestingly came from policing by other women. Yeah, and I guess a lot of sociologists that have written about the night out have written about this kind of pleasure-danger dichotomy mm. where um, that's part of the thrill and the pleasure of the night out, right? It's this kind of in-between kind of space away from the drudgery of yeah. everyday night five. It's about letting one's hair down. And, you know, I, for loads of my participants, that was hugely important. And actually, having time just with their girlfriends was really important. Yeah. That might be the only way they got to hang out with their female friends. So, you know, not to belittle that kind of night out in any mm. way. And actually, that kind of sense of the thrill or the unpredictability or the letting one's hair down, the release from the kind of mundane everyday life was really important, but came with those risks, as you talk about that idea that it was the kind of pleasures and dangers kind of mixed into yeah. one at the same time i think the whole point of femininity is that it's full of contradictions and it's really difficult to embody compounding these hidden codes of behavior emily also noticed how the marketing and language around specific kinds of alcohol played into cultural mores the people often want to talk about from the PhD work was around the kind of gendering of drinks as well right. and how and often when I talk to my students about this they're like no we're students we just drink whatever's cheap but I right. think for, so maybe it's because this was a few years ago or maybe it's because they're students so yeah. it kind of eliminates some of those issues around gender but certainly for my participants particularly the working class Geordie women there was a real sense that beer is still a manly masculine drink right. and you wouldn't go and have a pint of beer and they talked about, you know, the glass of wine. And actually, it wasn't always necessarily that they even liked the wine that much. Mm. They liked the way it felt. They liked holding the glass. They liked the elegance, one of them said, that came yeah. with drinking wine and cocktails as well. So, and a couple of my participants said, you know, I'd rather actually have a cider. But when I go on the girls' night out, I feel like I have to change what I'm drinking right. to fit in with the girly group. So if they're getting a bottle of wine, I can't push them away by saying, oh, I'm going to get a pint of Bex or whatever. Mm. One of the things I'm looking at at the moment is around the kind of ways that women use these ideas around authenticity mm. to talk about their sobriety. So they frame the kind of drinking self as this kind of person who wasn't really them, not the true self. So a lot of them use language like a mask or it's hiding the true self or, right. you know, one of them said, I lost myself in that bottle. So they talked about alcohol kind of smothering or covering up mm. who they really were. What this allowed them to do then is to talk about sobriety as this kind of revealing of the real self, you know, yes. this kind of, one of them even used that language, you know, I'm authentic, I'm real, for example. So it's really interesting because we often think about, you know, when we think about dry January, for example, we think about yes. new year, new you, yeah. this kind of new sober you that's going to come out for a month. But for my participants, it was not about a new you, it was kind of this return to the real you that had been yeah. there all along, but was being covered up by the alcohol. So lots of interesting stuff going on around authenticity and around identity and how mm. they kind of this like I say return to the true self yes um, which I think as well in today's kind of society there's a lot of pressure to kind of present ourselves as, as as who we really are and as these kind of you know productive successful entrepreneurial individuals who are responsible for our life choices and who you know live these kind of successful lives 
Professor John Williams will be back in January to explain how sustainable drainage could solve the environmental crisis many of us don't even know exists. We research a whole whole range of issues related to mainly sewage treatment. We have a, a specialism in, around looking at uh, low impact technologies, sustainable technologies. So, for example, we've done a lot of work with constructed wetlands using reed beds uh, for wastewater treatment in the UK, Egypt, South America. And these are technologies which don't have the same uh, intensity of energy use or same intensity of mechanical plant. So they have applications in rural locations, maybe in the UK, and also in uh, less developed countries. If you think of somewhere like Portsmouth, Victorian cities like Portsmouth, they were constructed with combined sewers. So in Portsmouth, London, old cities, we have surface drainage mixing with foul waste, which causes all sorts of engineering difficulties, particularly when we have storm events. And of course, the system has a finite capacity. Right. And we get something overspills called combined sewer overflows. So in that situation, you can get dilute sewage discharged into watercourses of the sea during storm events, for example, uh, Portsmouth uh, um, and of course, companies like Southern Water are doing lots of work to try and disconnect as many surface water sources as possible to yeah. manage that that discharge. Uh, that discharge also has other implications. This is the, the sorts of campaigns you see from Surface Against Sewage and so on about cotton buds on beaches. Right, yeah. Most of those are from combined sewer overflows, which have passed through, as I said before, six mil screens, and the cotton buds pass end on through. So people putting these plastic objects down the drain, which shouldn't be there in the first place, primarily because of the flush and forget mentality. They don't understand the, the, yeah. the, what that infrastructure is designed for, where the uh, where the environmental releases from that infrastructure are. The screenings from sewage works, um, well, contain everything you can think of and more. Um, yeah. Got a gruesome story. I was at a sewage works with a, uh, a group of students recently, and one of them, after my lecture describing what can end up on the screens, asked the process scientist who was showing us around, what's the worst thing you found on the screens? After a second thought, he said, fingers. Oh, my gosh. Oh. Yeah. So I told my little boy, and it made him cry. Ugh. And on the topic of water, Professor Mike Tipton explains how he's tackling the startling number of deaths by drowning with his campaign to educate the UK. A really important thing is to try and get this preventative messaging in to people before they enter into a high-risk group. And if your high-risk group starts at about 14 or 15, it seems like a very good idea to get something um, to children at around about 13 or 14. And we've been trying to do that for some time. Um, The rationale for it, of course, is there's one child a week drowning. There's more children dying in water than there are in fires or on bikes. And yet, you know, we will have bicycle proficiency in schools. We will have um, information on, on the TV about fire protection, about having smoke detectors. So, you know, even if we only treat drowning prevention with that same level, it justifies having something in schools. And it doesn't have to be a lot. We're not talking about, you know, great lectures about the moon and the sun and tides. We're just talking about a few, two or three safety messages that I call lessons for life because the people who hear them, um, they may well save their life somewhere down the line. And we've got lots of evidence um, that that's the case from the Respect the Water campaign.
the first experiments that I got involved with were to do with the um, initial responses to cold water immersion, as we called them then. And it was really looking at what a controlled immersion into cold water did in terms of your physiological responses. If you know the physiology, if you know that this cold shock response is maximal within the first 30 seconds to a minute, but has largely gone away by about 90 seconds, the sensible thing to do when you find yourself in cold water is to try and do as little as possible until you regain control of your breathing. The first bit of work we did in terms of the RNLI's Respect the Water campaign back in 2014 was just try to raise the profile of cold shock and get people to understand that it's not all about hypothermia. But then it became evident that around about half of, pe of the people who end up in cold water do so um, involuntarily. And so therefore there becomes an onus on telling them what to do if they happen to find themselves in the water. Yes, try not to fall in, but if you had no intention of going in anyway, then some advice on what to do if you do go in becomes important. So around about 2016, 2017, we changed the emphasis on the Respect the Water campaign. And um, we talked about perhaps um, floating first suppressing your instinct, staying still until the cold shock response abated. That, I mean, was founded on experiments that we were doing back in the 80s, where we showed that if you put people into cold water and you allowed them to stay still for two minutes before they started swimming, they did much better than if they started swimming straight away. Because, of course, what the cold shock response is provoking is what's called the fight or flight response, which is very appropriate on land. It prepares you to fight or run away. But in cold water, it's a completely inappropriate response. So your natural instinct in that situation is to thrash about, to try and swim hard. And it's completely the wrong thing to do because it significantly increases your chances of taking water into the airway. That's all to come when we return with a new episode on the 5th of January. I hope you'll join us again then. In the meantime, from all of us at the University of Portsmouth, thank you for listening. And here's to building a brighter world in 2021.